So Zephaniah, before we get to the text, I want to share a few things with you. And one of those is why we're in the Old Testament and why we're in a relatively obscure book in the Old Testament. Uh, anybody that's been reading my daily commentaries knows that, that the, the way I approach all Scripture is that there is something in every passage of Scripture, every chapter, every book that reveals some facet of the character and nature of God and or his plan of redemption for his children. So that gives value to every book in the Bible. Uh, those people that would encourage you that the Old Testament is just a history book, that's the old mean God, we're now worshiping the new loving God, well, it kind of writes off the value of the Old Testament. But if we read the Bible consecutively from Genesis all the way through Revelation, we find that God is slowly but methodically revealing who he is and who his son is through every book and every passage in, in the scripture. If we overlook the Old Testament, we overlook God's self-revelation. Zephaniah, just like every other book in the Bible, will tell us something about who God is, how he relates to his creation, and what his plan of salvation is. So we want to look at Zephaniah through those filters, and if we can do that, then we will learn contemporary lessons from a very ancient book. It was written in the latter half of the 7th century B.C., sometime between 650, more likely 640, and 600 B.C. And the situation in the region was that Assyria has come down and taken captive the 10 northern tribes, the northern kingdom, which was called Israel at that time. Judah was spared miraculously. And that was a good thing, but the, the impact of their, their miraculous protection didn't really work out real well for them in the long run, and I'll be able to explain to you why. So the Chaldeans and the Babylonians are kind of a footnote. They're a dot on the horizon. They haven't risen up yet. And, and the southern kingdom has had a series of kings, good kings and bad kings. You look at Kings and Chronicles, you're kind of able to document their progress. But they had a good king, Hezekiah. Hezekiah had some problems at the end. Hezekiah's son was Manasseh. He was a very bad king that things kind of started working out for him at the end. But Manasseh's son was Ammon, and Ammon was just a bad king. He only reigned for two years, but he did some really horrible stuff. And now, in Zephaniah's time, their king is Josiah. Josiah is eight years old when he takes the throne. And he doesn't, he's not actively running the country at eight years old. He's got some advisors around him. He will eventually come to enact reforms in Israel and try to undo all the bad work that Manasseh and Ammon instituted in, into Judah. But it's going to be a while before that happens. And Zephaniah, we're looking forward to that. Now, as far as Zephaniah is concerned, uh, you know, his name means the Lord hides, the Lord protects, the Lord treasures. We don't know a whole lot else about him, but we do know that Hezekiah was one of his forefathers. So it's very likely that Zephaniah was one of the advisors for Josiah when he was young and had an impact on Josiah and led him to turn the nation back to the Lord, okay? But we're not there yet when we're looking at Zephaniah. Zephaniah prophesies at a time when Judah has taken on the traits of the nations around them. And the problem with that is the nations around them didn't see 
the God of Judah, the one true God, as a, a, a God over everything. They saw him as just another one of those gods. And the prevailing attitude was that he may actually be powerless. He may not be able to do anything. If he is able to do anything, he's really indifferent about it. He's not paying attention. He'll do no good and no evil. And, and by the time this attitude begins to permeate Judah, Judah blurs the line between the one true God and the pagan gods. They're kind of all mixed up in there together. So in Zephaniah, we're going to hear about a coming judgment. And the judgment is going to fall on those nations that have influenced Judah and drawn them away from God. But what may come as a surprise to the Judeans is that there's going to be a judgment that falls on Judah as well. There's going to be judgment on the influencers for influencing God's people, but there's going to be some consequences for God's people for allowing themselves to be influenced. And we'll see in this some of the damage that Kings Manasseh and Ammon have made and find out that there's a price to pay for Judah turning their backs. And in all of that, I hope to be able to show you that we have a very contemporary lesson to learn from this. It's not just a dusty history book. So today's sermon is the coming judgment. And here's what, what God is going to reveal about his character and nature in Zephaniah, particular in these first few passages. Here's the truth you should carry away today. There are earthly consequences for our sin. There are earthly consequences for the sins that God's people commit. Now, we'll get into the nature of those consequences and the longevity of them, but I want you to hold on to that idea that there are earthly consequences for our sin. And our passage today comes in two judgments. There's the judgment of mankind in verses 1 through 3, and then there's a judgment that falls on Judah in verses 4 through 6. So let's take a look at this judgment of mankind, starting with verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, he was a good king, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Now, what we have is by this point, Zephaniah would be recognized as a prophet, and a word of the Lord is coming through the prophet. Now, these days, uh, prophecies kind of flying all over the place, some of it uh, we're asked to trust just because somebody says they're a prophet. Uh, some of it we have to analyze through the filter of Scripture. But in those days, being a prophet was pretty serious business. When you stood up in those days and said, Thus saith the Lord, people would stop and listen. Now, you were fully accountable for everything you said. And if you said, The Lord is saying this, or the Lord's going to do this, and that didn't happen, what would they do to you? They'd stone you. So this was serious business. Now, I, I want you to notice that as we go through the Old Testament and we hear the prophets pointing towards Jesus Christ, there's a lot of, thus says the Lord. God says this. The word of the Lord comes. When you get to the New Testament, there is not, there's not one statement that says, thus says the Lord. And the reason for that is the New Testament tells us that God has spoken everything he has to say in and through his son, Jesus Christ. So, when we have the prophets in the Old Testament, they are speaking for God, is authoritative, it is accurate, it is perfect. 
And so when Zephaniah has this word, everybody is going to stop what they're doing and listen to what he has to say. And his credentials are, he's of the lineage of Hezekiah. And Josiah is on the throne. Ammon has kind of ruined everything. So what Zephaniah has to say is that God says this. In verse 2, I will utterly sweep away. Now, when the Hebrews heard that term, sweep away, they're thinking of a wind. And they're, they're liking it to the wind that they would use when they were threshing wheat. Now, the threshing floor for wheat was generally up on a hill where there was an easy source of wind, and the thresher would take his pitchfork and throw the wheat up in the air, and the wind would blow the chaff away, and the grain, because it was heavier, would fall down. So that's the image the Jews would see in their minds when they heard this, this uh, swept away. But when, when Zephaniah says God says that he will utterly sweep away, it changes the nature of that vision. Now the wind is a storm. It's a mighty storm. And if the thresher throws up the wheat in the storm, it's very likely that the chaff and the grain is going to be swept away. It's going to be blown away. So he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. Now, we're talking about a radical house cleaning here. This wind is going to thoroughly blow everything away. Now, we've got to be careful because the next verse says, I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the seas, and the rubble with the wicked. And there were undoubtedly people standing there that would have heard this and, and might have reacted a bit too soon, might have not waited to hear the rest of the prophecy, and might have said, God's going to blow everything away. I've got to go chain everything down. I've got to find some way to protect myself. I've got to find some way to preserve myself. But we know, amen, brothers and sisters, we know that we have to listen to the full counsel of Scripture before we begin acting on it. So those wise ones in the crowd would have waited for Zephaniah to finish the prophecy. And, and they would read through this, in particular in verse 3, that pretty much the wicked and the rubble, those, those things that are associated with the wicked, are going to be blown away. Still the Lord says, I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So it's just the first few sentences of the prophecy. And it's dark. It's filled with doom. It's meant to create that picture. It's intended to make those who are listening listen intently. And, and even as they hear these things, because they're the people of God, they're hoping that there's some ray of encouragement, that there's some ray of hope in here. As God begins to pronounce these judgments, well, what's going to happen to us, the people of the Lord? So they're looking for the judgment that will come, and it's going to come, but it's not going to come for a while. The ray of hope in particular is not going to come for a while. So the main message that we see in verses 1 through 3 is God saying, listen up. The God that you think is so powerless, the God that you think is just one God among the other gods, the God that you have taken casually and ignored it is going to bring a storm so powerful that everything is going to be swept away. And now Zephaniah has their attention. And, and in particular, the Hebrews, because they would be familiar with their scripture, and they know that God can do this. 
They've seen the power of God. It's part of their DNA. It's part of their heritage. They know that God flooded everything away at one point. Now, he promised he would never do that again, that he would never destroy all of mankind except for a remnant uh, by a flood. But now he's talking about a windstorm that's going to do the same thing. So, I, I think we could probably give them a little bit of latitude, maybe, if some of them were standing there and thinking, oh, but not us. We're the children of God. I mean, our whole history is God destroying everything around us and preserving us. And maybe not paying quite as much attention to the fact that some of them got destroyed as well. But I, we, we could excuse them, I think, if they're thinking, but, but we're God's chosen people. We're his beloved race. He can't possibly talking about us. He's talking about the wicked. He's talking about all those associated with the wicked. And maybe some of this is hyperbole because it can't possibly apply to us. We are the children of the promise. So if they're thinking that, we've seen that there's going to be judgment on all mankind. But now we hear this judgment on Judah in the next three verses. You know, again, Judah's got good reason to believe that they're going to be spared. I mean, when the Assyrians came down and took the northern kingdom away, Judah and Jerusalem were preserved miraculously. God just made people die and run away. <laughs> and so they could be sitting there going, well, you know, we saw what happened in the northern kingdom. They didn't do such a good job of worshiping God. God has preserved us. And, and the problem that Judah has is after they are preserved, after they are miraculously transformed and saved and protected, they begin to get pretty casual in their relationship with God. They do everything they're told not to do. They begin bringing outside practices in, outside gods. They begin kind of putting God on a shelf and going, well, he saved us, he protected us. Now we can have a good time. We can relax. So God's got news for them too. He says, I will, in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now notice, notice, we don't have this I will swept away, but I will stretch out my hand. So there's something coming on Judah. There are consequences for, for what King Manasseh and King Ammon is at. And, and it's not just King Manasseh, it's not just King Ammon that the consequences are coming against because the nation followed them. What they had to say, we look back now and we go, oh, evil kings, who would listen to them? The nation, they told the nation what they wanted to hear. They tickled the nation's ears. You can do this, you can do that, you can have this, you can have that. Just do these things over here. Let's bring these practices in. Let's bring these people in over here and everything will be fine. And the nation followed them. So this is coming for Judah. God is going to stretch out his hand against them. And he says, I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. So God is going to cut off five offenses that have been committed against him by the people of Judah. And those offenses range from the blatantly obvious to the not so obvious, to the more casual, the more hidden. Watch what happens here. 
here are the five offenses. God is going to cut off every remnant of Baal. Okay, now Baal is a Canaanite god, and he was the god of fertility and prosperity. And the way that god was worshipped was when the, the body came together, when his believers came together, there were public displays of intimacy. There were public displays of intimacy and an expectation that as people began to express themselves openly and without shame, that they would receive wealth. We need to think about that for a second. Because none of us here are Baal worshipers, I'm assuming. Okay? But what Baal was encouraging was the worship of sexuality and wealth. Now look, there's nothing wrong with our sexuality. God has given us that, okay? But when we begin placing it above our worship of God, there's nothing wrong with wealth. If you're here today and you're rich, God's not cursing you with anything, okay? But when we begin placing the value of our wealth and our material goods above our value of God in our lives, we have a problem. And so you could call that Baal worship. You could call it whatever you want. If your goal is to express yourself sexually, identify yourself independent of God sexually, if your goal is to get rich from your participation in the church, if your, your money is more important to you than God, then God says he's going to cut that off. He's going to cut that off from his people. First thing. Second thing he's going to cut off is pagan and idolatrous And these are priests that are leading God's people to worship other things other than God. Even as they are worshiping Yahweh. See, they were still coming together. They're still going to synagogue. They're still listening to somebody preach the word of God. But the word is being manipulated and the priorities are being changed. And what was happening was we had these priests that were worshiping these things that sounded appealing to the people of God, but they weren't about God, and their focus and their direction was getting changed. And some of these priests are being raised up as celebrities. Now, does that sound familiar? I don't know if you saw an article a couple weeks ago about celebrity priests, celebrity pastors. And we're kind of in that culture. These names will rise up, and it's not a bad thing in itself, Uh, It's what happens when you begin manipulating that celebrity to get your own goals. And, you know, the the focus of the article was on uh, a bunch of these pastors that are wearing $10,000 sneakers. Did you even know that you could spend $10,000 for a pair of sneakers? The first house I grew up in, they sold for $7,000 after I left town. So, and these guys, now, now look, I don't want to judge these guys. I don't know where their heart is. They may be praising God. But they're attracting a lot of attention. And there are people that belong to their churches that are saying, well, we need to buy those speakers. We need to be like him. We need to follow his example. That can be good if his example is pointing towards Christ, but if it's just building his own celebrity. See, that's what was happening in Judah. The priests were walking through town, and people were going, do you know who that is? Yeah, well, he's some kind of preacher, but let me tell you what. Man, look at that robe he's got. Okay, so that thing, that whole attitude is going to be cut off from God's people. The third thing is he's going to cut off those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens. 
And these are people who are worshiping the heavens more than they're worshiping God. They're worshiping God's creation. They're, they're, they're placing themselves on the roofs. They're looking at the stars and go, those are magnificent. I'm seeing messages up there. I'm getting messages from there. I'm reading my zodiac. I'm reading my horoscope. I'm doing these things. And they're disregarding God and paying attention to his creation. Now, we don't have anybody here that would do that today, but i got to tell you something. There are environmentalists out there that think a lot more of our environment than they do of God. Some of that is appropriate. We are supposed to be good stewards of the world that we live in. We have to be good stewards with the understanding that at some point God's going to burn it all up. 2 Peter 3, okay? But meantime, we're called to be good stewards, not just because we want to take care of the world, but because it's God's creation. It's a gift that he's given us, and we want to be a reflection of the character and nature of God to the people around us. So part of our stewardship is showing people that we value the blessings that God's given us. But when we start placing our environment above God in how we conduct our lives, we've got a problem, and that's what we're talking about here. You worship the creation more than you worship the creator. We need to understand that God is a God of climate change. Somebody say amen. Okay, he's in charge of this, and I can't mess it up, but I can abuse it. The other thing that God's going to cut off is those who bow down and swear to the Lord and milcom. This is a big one. Milcom was another word for the pagan god Molech. Molech demanded infant sacrifice in worship to him. And what, what, what these people were doing was, they said, well, okay, we're going to worship God, but you know, the god Molech has some advantages too, and there are some good things over there, so we're going to bring some of the good things in Molech worship and integrate them into our worship of God. This concept is called syncretism. It's when we bring facets of the world into the worship of our father and so they're putting mullet right up there beside god and again we find ourselves in a situation where none of us would ever worship mullet but the idea was that if you sacrificed your infant child to mullet that you would gain a benefit that you would gain a blessing and i gotta tell you something when we're in a in a culture that has aborted over a half a million children and and you know we can get into a long argument about how many of those are necessary and how many of those were under certain circumstances but I got to tell you something the ones that are necessary and the ones that are under that level of, of duress as far as circumstances are infinitesimal compared to the ones that are done for convenience and we hear this you know we hear this down at the care net we hear it down at the shelter uh, it's not a good time for me to have a baby uh, it's, uh, we, we can't afford it. I've got too much to do right now. I've got too many kids. So we abort expecting that God is going to somehow bless that. They're worshiping Moloch. And we have echoes of that here in today's culture. The last thing that God is going to sweep away, and this one is just as inviting, those who have turned their back from following the Lord, who neither seek the Lord or inquire of him, and what he's saying is, God is going to sweep away those who no longer trust in him, those who no longer turn to him, those who no longer involve him 
in their day-to-day decisions, those who have put them on the back shelf and consult him only when they're in trouble. So God's going to sweep these things away. And this last one is of primary importance to us because uh, I don't know about you, but I always find myself questioning whether or not God is the highest priority in my life today or afternoon or maybe a particular hour. Uh, I, want, I have to strive to keep them there. Uh, but Hosea tells us that it's important. We see that in Hosea 5.15 uh, where God says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. We see the same thing in Amos chapter 5, verse 14. Seek God and not evil that you may live and so that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. So this list of offenses goes from the clearly profane toward the average believer. It goes from the chaff to the grain where he started. And it begins with this extreme Baal worship and idolatrous priests that we see and ends with the same fate for those who simply don't bother to turn towards God on a daily basis, who simply just kind of keep them in the background and pull them out whenever they need a blessing. So Yahweh says he's going to cut all of them off, in particular those in Jerusalem. Now, listen carefully, because the history of the Hebrew people throughout the Old Testament is that they are always his children. They are always the chosen people. And that doesn't change here. They are still his chosen people. Now, things are going to get a bit more complicated when Jesus comes around, but he's not there yet, okay? So they are his people, but he will not tolerate sin. His judgment is going to fall on all of mankind, but it's going to fall on Judah and Jerusalem as well. And if Judah doesn't regard the prophecy, you see, here's the reason the prophecy's there. It's an opportunity to turn. It's an opportunity to change your ways. It's an opportunity to hear, this is what's going to happen if you don't undo all this stuff that Manasseh and Ammon has done. It's an opportunity to make sure that God is the highest priority in all things. And what God wants to make clear to those people and to us is that there are earthly consequences for our sin. I hear it all the time. We don't have to repent. We've already repented. God's already forgiven us. Jesus died for our sins. When you ask for forgiveness on a day-to-day basis, all you're doing is putting Jesus back up on the cross. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Lord's Prayer says day-to-day to ask for forgiveness for our sins and to forgive sins. We have to be careful. We can't take God so much for granted that we violate his holiness and then disregard it. We're called to be a holy people. Well, what do we do? Because I I sin all the time. I sinned this morning. And I'm willing to bet that every one of you have sinned in some fashion sometime today. Maybe, maybe not blatantly, maybe you're not out worshiping Baal. But maybe, just maybe, you've had a moment or two there was something far more important to you than God in your day. Like that guy at the red light that won't move. 
I mean, that's how it creeps up on us. So are we hopeless? I mean, is God going to sweep us away because we have committed this sin and, and we're reading this in Zephaniah? And Well, you know, the answer to that doesn't come until a little bit later on in the book. It's only three chapters long. You ought to read it this week. But I'm not going to leave you hanging. Yes, there can be consequences for our sin subsequent to salvation. But brothers and sisters are not eternal. The sins that we commit subsequent to our salvation are not of an eternal nature. Now we know this because scripture tells us. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now what we're talking about is the law of sin and death and the eternal impact it has on us. We're free of that. We don't have to worry that we've dropped the ball somewhere along the line, we've done something wrong, and now we can't get into heaven. That we don't have to worry that we're going to be standing there. You know, I love this vision of Peter at the gate, right? Because we all know he's manning the gate. And, and you know, we don't have to worry that we're going to get there, and Peter's going to look at us and go, oh, you know, you stole that candy when you were four years old and you never asked forgiveness for it. I'm sorry, you can't come in. So we're not under that law. Our residency in heaven is determined by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, not by how we walk it out. So we have that assurance, okay? We're free from death. We're free from eternal separation from God. But we need to understand that we can suffer the consequences of our sin in an earthly manner, temporarily. We can, we can fall under God's chastisement, we can remove ourselves from his provision and his protection. And the great thing about that is because we're all going to sin no matter what we do, God has given us a way to deal with that. He's given us a way to remove ourselves from those consequences. He's given us a way to avoid that, that chastisement coming. And it's not that we got to go get saved again, that we got to make sure that we got saved. It's not that we, we need to go do this ritual or go through that process or say that prayer again or even maybe sit in front of another human being and ask him for forgiveness. God's given us another route. All we have to do, brothers and sisters, is repent. All we have to do is to repent. Luke tells us in his gospel, and, and when he says, if another brother, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, we're told to forgive those people who sin against us because, not because it's the right thing to do, but because we're being molded and shaped into the image and nature of God. And it is the nature of God to forgive when people ask for forgiveness. It's the nature of God to shed mercy and grace when people repent. And we're supposed to emulate that. We're supposed to show people what grace and forgiveness looks like. We see it again when Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. Now, you have to understand, he's writing to the church. He's not writing to unbelievers. And he says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. And that's not enough. John speaks to the churches in Revelation. When he talks to those seven churches, he's talking to the people of God. He's not talking to unbelievers. Jesus is not knocking on the door of unbelievers' hearts. He's knocking on the door of the church. 
And his message is almost the same thing that Zephaniah is. It's, you've left me out of your worship service. Open a door and invite me in. So here's what John says, God says to the church in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. And again, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, those whom I love, God says, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. It's a tool that God's given us. It's our way of getting back into a right relationship with him. Now listen carefully. Repentance is more than just confession. Confession is good. Confession is good. But repentance is a bit deeper. Uh, It's a bit more involved because when we repent, we grieve over our sin. We realize we've done something wrong, but we not only repent, we not only confess, we turn away from it. And we don't just turn away from the sin, we turn away from the sin and we turn towards God and we begin to seek his righteousness. Now look, none of us are good at that. And none of us are going to be able to do that for the rest of our lives. Okay? But God knows that. He knows what Paul said, my spirit is strong but my flesh is weak. My spirit wants to do this and my flesh fails me every time. Paul stumbled when he wanted to do the right thing. He would do the wrong thing. But Paul had a hold of something that we should have a hold of as well. Paul knew that when he stumbled, he should repent. He should go back to God and said, help me, Lord. And the fact that he stumbled was nothing more to Paul than evidence that he can't do it on his own. So Jesus died and ascended to heaven so that he could send the Spirit to dwell in us, to guide us and counsel us and enable us. And when we understand that the Spirit is in us and the Spirit will guide us and counsel us, we know that when we make that decision to sin, listen carefully, sinning is a decision. Anybody remember Flip Wilson? Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. We'll be giving our our age away. But there is no, the devil made me do it. There is no, the devil, the devil will tempt you. Whether or not you respond to the temptation is up to you. You can decide not to. God has given us spirit, so we don't have to struggle with that decision. So when we're about to do something that we know is an offense to our Father in heaven, the spirit is inside us going, don't do that. Don't do that. But he's not going to force us. We have to decide whether or not we're going to listen to the Spirit or listen to our own desires. So sinning is a decision that we make. And when we mess it up, watch this. I I, I just think this is beautiful. God doesn't seek to punish us. He seeks to grow us. He loves us. He's not sitting in heaven going, boy, I'm going to smack him again. I can hardly wait till, you know, God says, The fact that you just slipped again is evidence that I'm still working in your life. And the fact that you know that you slipped again is evidence of the Holy Spirit in you. So the next time you come upon this, trust me, not yourself. And if you do slip, repent. Repent. See, we have a tool that Zephaniah didn't have. As God reveals that facet of his character and nature that he will not tolerate sin in his people. 
God has graciously given those of us who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior the capability to turn away from it and turn towards him. I can't think of a better time for us to go to the Lord's table because as we meditate and contemplate the sacrifice that was made to us that enabled this transaction to occur that Jesus would arise and send the Spirit to us, we have the opportunity right now to repent. So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Go before the Lord.